Let us open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We have the greatest theme and subject in the universe before us today. And as I have already said, our flesh is such in its inherent rebellion and hatred for righteousness, the God of heaven and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's a conflict in every one of us to pay attention and apply ourselves the way that we should. Our flesh hates the Lord Jesus Christ. Our spirits love Him. Lord, help us. Galatians chapter 6, the six chapters of this epistle are given for the Apostle Paul to argue and debate against the Jewish legalists who were infecting the churches of Galatia by trying to add circumcision and keeping the law of Moses to the finished work of Christ. The apostle concludes in chapter 6 by inserting this verse in the middle of some verses about circumcision being worthless in the New Testament with that 14th verse. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. There should be nothing else that you glory in, like the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God forbid, we know those words are some of the strongest negative in the Bible. God forbid that you should get excited, that you should be consumed, that you should give your attention and your affection at a high level to anything else but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet in our flesh we are tempted to do so. The world attracts us. Satan deceives us. Our flesh wants anything but the cross of Christ. But the warning of Scripture is, God forbid that we should ever glory in anything save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else should be like the cross of Christ to us. By whom the world is crucified unto me. Paul didn't care one whit anymore for the things of the world because of the cross of Calvary. And the world didn't care anymore about the Apostle Paul because of the cross of Calvary. Since Paul was a servant of the cross, the world hated him. Because Paul was a servant of the cross, he hated the world. And that's the effect that the cross of Christ should have on each of us. We should glory in it. It is the greatest transaction the greatest event, the greatest cure for sin and death that we could ever imagine. It reflects the power and the wisdom of God like nothing else. We spent last Lord's Day, First Assembly, Second Assembly, Wednesday evening, giving glory to God for the great things He hath done. But the greatest thing God has done is sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that propitiation took place on the cross of Calvary when the Lamb of God was brutally murdered by the Jews. But God forbid. Don't run into the teeth of this verse. Don't run away from this verse. Don't disobey this verse. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. If we were reading by candlelight in the catacombs under the city of Rome, with some of our number being held for Roman sport in the Colosseum, and the graves of others all around us in those dark reaches under the earth, you would appreciate this message of the cross of Calvary. If this morning I were reading a list of prizes to you given by grant of the government or lottery winnings, you would be excited in your flesh. But I tell you something far better than that. 
It's the cross of Christ. The thing that we must look at first, and we just sang it so well, is to make it our glory. The the first verse of the last song that we sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And that's what we want to do today, is to survey the cross. And look at it from a number of different angles and aspects, so that we might appreciate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on that tree. When I survey the wondrous cross, is the cross wondrous to you? Do we take the time to survey it like we should? We're going to do it right now. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. The Prince of Glory dying on a cross for His enemies, as it's been said, unequal, unfair, not right. It's all grace and it's all mercy from God to send His Son for us in such a way. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. What do you consider a gain? What have you gained? What do you have that you think is something special? My richest gain I count but loss. The Apostle Paul had some religious gains that he had accomplished in the Jews' religion, and he counted them all but dung that he might know and win the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you willing to count your richest gain? Some of you have had a good financial year this year. Are you willing to count it all loss for Jesus Christ? Some of you have conceived and you're expecting a child. It should be loss compared to Christ and His cross. No matter what you look at or think about, it should be loss. But especially any religious accomplishments, any efforts that we have put forth are all loss for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should pour contempt on all our pride. What are you proud about? There there is nothing in your life to be proud of, first of all, but second of all, in comparison of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, we should pour contempt on all our pride. That song matches up so well with Galatians 6 and verse 14. When we look at the cross, we first need to think about the need of the cross. There had to be the cross if God was going to save His rebel enemies. And what a glorious design it was. We read from Isaiah 52, or we had read to us, that my servant shall deal very prudently. In the cross of Calvary, there is great wisdom displayed as God became the just God that He is and the justifier of sinners. Our first parents fully condemned us to death in the Garden of Eden. In three phases. In the day that they ate the fruit thereof, they died, and we are born dead in trespasses and sins, just like they became the instant after they ate that fruit. In one instant of time, they both realized they were naked. They were naked with each other, and they were naked before God, and they made efforts to cover their guilt and shame because they were dead spiritually. 930 years later, Adam died physically. And unless the Lord Jesus Christ has died for Adam and there is no evidence of it in the Bible, he is in the lake of fire right now experiencing an appetizer of the second death where he will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Three phases of death. Spiritual death, physical death, and then the second death. We got from our first parents. And brethren, that death is sucking at you right now. I don't care. While you're young, you're foolish. You're foolish and you do not understand that as time races by, death is clutching in every organ and every process of your body. And I've been over that before and laid it out in graphic detail to you from your teeth to your sex drive to your, to your heart, to your arteries, to your skin, to your hair, to the luster of your flesh. All of it is being, is decaying. Because death is clutching at you, and it is coming after you and pursuing you. And I wonder, who will be next in our congregation to lie in a bed in a box in front of us? We need the cross. Because we got ourselves into a world of hurt in the Garden of Eden by sinning against God, our Creator. 
And we brought death upon ourselves three different ways. It doesn't matter whether by abortion or miscarriage, even infants die as a consequence of sin. You can fuss and argue all you want about original sin, but I ask you the question, why do babies die? Because of the Garden of Eden, babies die. Because of Adam's transgression, babies die. By one man's sin, death came upon all men. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. And brethren, the whole creation is groaning under the travail of sin. We have messed up the whole thing. The laws of entropy are decaying this universe while I stand here and preach to you. Everything you know that is beautiful decays. If it is organic, like a rose, it fades, it wilts, it falls, it goes back into the ground. If it's a mechanical device or paint on your automobile, it oxidizes and it rusts because everything in this world is under the decay and ruin and destruction of sin. In the Bible it is called the bondage of corruption. Everything under the bondage of corruption. Everything is in prison corrupting. It is called the pain and travail of the creature. The creation is under pain and travail because of sin that entered in the Garden of Eden. And we have a spirit enemy. A spirit enemy that is out to destroy us before God and to ruin our relationship with Him. He lied to our first parents and got them under the promised judgment of God, which was death. He accused Job to God as the fact that Job was only religious and Job only feared God because of the hedge that God had put around Job. There is an enemy out there. He could go into the presence of God and rail on Job and accuse Job of false motives. If God ever let him have his way with a man like David, a man like David would number Israel in a moment's time, even when the captain of the host, Joab, was telling him it was the wrong thing to do. We have a spirit like that out there that took our first parents and ruined them in the Garden of Eden. Eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil condemned a race that numbers somewhere between 50 and 100 billion since the creation. Sin, in all of its gory consequences. Our overwhelming enemies are sin, guilt, condemnation, death, the devil, a cursed universe, and the lake of fire. There needed to be a cross. And oh, the cross delivers us from all those enemies. Brethren, the cross of Christ was planned before the creation of the world. We understand that and we believe it. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 18, we have this word from James at the council of Jerusalem, known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. Our Lord's crucifixion on the cross of Calvary. The cross of Calvary was not a remedial measure because God created men and then those men got themselves into trouble and He needed to try to help them. That is not how this universe exists at all. Even the Arminian God, and he he isn't much of a God, but even the Arminian God, they give him omniscience. And merely omniscience is enough to prove that that whole idea is false. Our Lord's crucifixion was not a remedial plan after Adam sinned in Eden. God had purposed the grand scheme of redemption from the beginning of His counsel to create. He could have kept Satan out of the Garden of Eden as easily as He kept Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden after they sinned. But He didn't. Redemption and the climactic day of judgment that are coming are according to the determinate counsel of our eternal God. God did not send His Son in love for some enemies because His creatures got in trouble. God did not send His Son in love for some enemies because His creatures got in trouble. God created creatures to get in trouble so He could send His Son to display His power and love. And that is an entirely different view of the cross. The cross was God's plan from the beginning. It was the first plan. 
If we were ever to try to be foolish and put the decrees of God in order, it was the cross to glorify Himself. Jesus was foreordained before the world began to die the death of the cross. We've learned that recently in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. And God had already chosen His elect in Christ Jesus before the world began, as it is stated in Ephesians 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And the names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, as stated in Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. Yes, Lord. His purpose in the cross of Calvary is to display to all rational creatures the infinite glory of divine love and wrath. The cross. What is the purpose of the cross? It is for God to display love and wrath. Romans chapter 9 verses 21 through 24 tell us, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Thank you, Lord, for that. The Bible tells us that fundamental axiom for the existence of the universe, the Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, even the wicked... For the day of evil. Proverbs 16 and verse 4. Scripture says before the world was created, God had already chosen His elect, promised them eternal life, ordained Jesus Christ to die for them, put our names in the book of life, and given us His grace and purpose that could not be overthrown or even questioned by men. The glory of the cross is not a forced remedy, but rather as a chosen means of highest praise of our God. And that is an enormous difference in how we view the existence of the universe. This whole universe exists as a stage upon which a grand drama is played out where God reveals that He has love and wrath the likes of which we have never imagined. That is why it exists. Pluto exists if it exists. And it twirls around the sun if it twirls around the sun as part of a grand stage on which God sent His Son to be the propitiation for His chosen people and to save them to the glorious praise of His grace for eternity and to allow the rest of our wicked, wretched, rebellious race to suffer for their the consequences of their sin from Eden and what they do every day of their lives. It is all of grace. And it's all for God's glory. And it's all for God's praise. This is the purpose and the plan of the cross. My brethren, preaching the cross of Calvary is not an effort in eloquence, nor even one of emotion. It is one of declaring to you what the Bible says. If you are born again, you have a spiritual mind. And you have a new man and you latch on to the things of God's Word, and they feed your soul. It is not that God is looking for eloquent men or emotional men. I hope there's a measure of eloquence. I hope there's some emotion. I pray for both. I thank you for praying for both. But it comes down to thinking and accepting and believing and embracing what the Bible says. At this point, I want to tell you that when I look at the cross of Calvary, I see three trees. As soon as I open the pages of the Bible, I am introduced in Genesis chapter 2 to the first tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And our first parents ate of it, contrary to the commandment of God, and it cast between 50 and 100 billion of us under condemnation and curse for the lake of fire. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The consequences of Adam's sin are clutching at you right now, as I have already said. They are pulling you down. Every single one of you will be in the bed in a box. And soon. And who will be the next of us? 
We want to think about that fact. If you have not been to a funeral recently of someone you love, you are deprived of the benefit of seeing death up close and personal. Because that's where we're all going, and it's the consequence of sin, and it's only by properly seeing and viewing death that we properly see the value and glory of the cross of Christ. Because Jesus, by His death, destroyed death. The Bible word is, abolish death, and hath brought life and immortality. And we hear about it in the gospel. So I see three trees. I see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as what damned our race to eternal torment. I see our parents eating the fruit off that tree. And then I see a flaming cherub placed in the Garden of Eden, turning every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So that is the second tree that is in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. God said, now that they have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we must cut them off, speaking to Himself in Genesis chapter 3, from touching the tree of life, lest they eat from that tree and live forever. So there was a flaming cherub. And as far as we know, that flaming cherub was there until the flood. 1,656 years. Is that hard for you to accept? It's not hard for me to accept. After the flood, there wasn't a Garden of Eden. It was washed away. A flaming cherub to keep our parents from getting to the tree of life. That is the second tree. So that we cannot eat of it. But then when you come to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, and Revelation chapter 22 and verse 2, and chapter 22 and verse 14, three times in the book of Revelation, we are told, we are taught, that those in heaven have free access to the tree of life. And it bears fruit in 12 seasons. And we can eat of that fruit of the tree of life. The tree of life is open to us again. It's because there's a tree in the middle of the Bible. And the tree in the middle of the Bible is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And five times the apostles refer to it as the tree. Who bore our sins in His own body on the tree. It was a wooden cross. And so because of that cross, because of that tree that is in the middle of the Bible, it saves us from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by taking away the curse from eating off that tree, and it opens up to us the tree of life. What a blessing! This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are mysteries that are revealed to us in the Bible that natural men do not have a clue about. These things are not taught anywhere. No matter how high you would go in our institutions of higher learning, you will not learn these things. But they are revealed to us as babes. And as a babe, I love to come to the Word of God and to think upon something as simple but as as, as exciting as the three trees of the Bible. And it's the cross of Calvary that saved us from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and opened up to us the tree of life. Now those cherubs stand back and watch as we eat of the tree of life, desiring to look into these things because Jesus died for us on the cross and did not die for them. Glory to God. It's a wonderful transaction that took place. Love the tree of Calvary. Love the tree of Golgotha on which Jesus hung between heaven and earth to fully redeem us. The cross is the tree where Jesus took our sins. Look at John chapter 18 with me. John chapter 18. This tree. Oh, it's important that it be a tree. Could Jesus have died some other way? No. He couldn't have. Because it is written in the volume of the book of me that I will be lifted up from the earth. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, As Moses lifted, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of the devil. The Son of Man shall be lifted up. In John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, I want you to watch a particular part of the trial 
of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 31. Let's get verse 29. Let's just remember what was going on. Pilate continued to argue with the Jews that there was no cause in Jesus of Nazareth for him to be put to death. Verse 29, Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Why did they say that? Because they were wicked haters of the Lord Jesus Christ is why they said that. Why did they say that? Because they were rebel enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ and for envy they had brought him to destroy him because he was taking apart some of their support among the common people. Why did they say that? To fulfill scripture, my dear brethren. The cross of Calvary had to be a tree and it had to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have in verse 32 that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. When he spoke of being lifted up, that is sign language. That is signifying that he would have to die a crucifixion death on a cross, on a tree. So the method was determined by Almighty God, according to his determinate counsel. And though Pilate tried to get it off his hands, he did not want the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on his hands if he could avoid it. He wanted the Jews to put him to death. But what was the means of death by the Jews? Stoning. What was the Roman method? Crucifixion. It had to be one, and it couldn't be the other. And how do we arrange for that? You just read it. Thank you, Lord. You took care of it in all details. Let's look at Daniel chapter 9 and realize that the timing of all things moved toward this great event. Daniel chapter 9. Ezekiel and then Daniel. The ninth chapter. Do you know that as early as Genesis chapter 3, God told Satan that the seed of the woman would bruise his head. And that that seed was a male. That the woman was going to have a man at some time in the future that would bring a fatal wound against the devil. The devil would wound his heel, but he would wound that devil's head. As early as Genesis chapter 3, Jacob on his deathbed, when he lined his sons up around him, said that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh would come, and to him would be the gathering of the people. And that's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can go on and read prophecies of Moses, prophecies even of Balaam, about the star that would rise out of Jacob, being the Lord Jesus Christ. You have had read to you this morning Psalm 22, a prophecy whose opening words are from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You've heard Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, the prophecies of the Bible, all of history, all of human existence is moving toward the event of, was moving toward the event of Jesus dying on the cross. In Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel's been praying to the Lord because by reading the book of Jeremiah, he realized that the 70 years of captivity in Babylon were about to end, the Lord sends an angel to him with this message. Verse 24, these are the words of the angel. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Four hundred and ninety years would accomplish these things. To finish the transgression, the wickedness of the people of Israel by crucifying Jesus. To make an end of sins by Him purging us from our sins on the cross. And to make reconciliation for iniquity by Jesus being a propitiation so God was reconciled to us. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. The clothing that we shall wear in heaven from a legal standpoint is the everlasting righteousness of Christ put upon us. And to seal up the vision and prophecy. To hide it from all those but His elect. And to anoint the most holy which took place at the baptism of Jesus Christ. 
Here is Daniel in approximately 456 B.C. getting this message from an angel about this great event that's coming. Seventy years were ending. Seventy weeks of years were beginning. And they would terminate in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the seventh deeth week. It says in verse 26, And after three score and two weeks, there's seven weeks in verse 25, so that is 69 weeks. We have one week remaining. After, that means in the 70th week, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. In the 70th week, Jesus, the Messiah, would be cut off, but not for Himself. He was cut off for you and me. And the people of the prince, that is Prince Titus of the Roman government, that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that took place in 70 A.D. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And we will have that confirmation of the covenant today in the Lord's Supper when we take up the cup and say, this cup is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my blood. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. In the middle of the 70th week, three and a half years after Jesus was baptized and anointed with the Holy Ghost, he was cut off on the cross of Calvary, not for himself, but for us. And it ended the sacrificial system because the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, opening up the way to God because Jesus had died for us. Oh, my brethren, the Bible tells us about the time of Reformation. It was introduced by John the Baptist in Luke 16, verse 16. We don't care that much, although we're thankful for some residual benefits of the Reformation that took place in the 16th and 17th centuries, but we're most thankful for the Reformation that took place commencing with John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. The Lord Jesus Christ told the woman of Samaria that they didn't know how to worship God in Samaria, nor did they know how to worship Him in Jerusalem. The time was coming when God was seeking those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth, and that is New Testament worship, as it's described in Hebrews 9 in much greater detail. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman. That seed of the woman, first prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, came in the fullness of time. Thank you, Lord. The message of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ were both the same. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because of the cross of Calvary that was there at hand. You are blessed to be on this side of Christ's cross to fully appreciate its glory. Instead of seeing it obscurely, instead of seeing its shadows in the ordinances of the Old Testament, we get to see it in all of its historical splendor described for us in writing in the Word of God. Thank you, Lord. 6,000 years of human history are divided by B.C. and A.D. Anno Domini. In the year of our Lord. 4,000 years of before Christ, B.C., and 2,000 years of Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, 2014. We stand today. Thank you, Lord. It all turns upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And while that date looks more to His birth than His death, He was only born for one reason, and that was to die. And so we see the cross of Christ dividing time. What a person was raised up for the cross. The cross has no value unless there's a person upon that cross. The value of the cross is the value of the person, not the value of the wood. It's the value of the person. His death, His shed blood, His torn body. A human descendant of David by both Mary and Joseph. The genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is that of Joseph, his legal father. The genealogy in Luke chapter 3 is that of Mary. His biological mother. He is twice David's. The son of David. Born of the tribe of Judah and in David's royal lineage as it had been often prophesied. He was born of a virgin to escape any legal connection to Adam and to be free of sin. 
Born of a virgin. God was his father. Mary didn't quite understand it in Luke chapter 1. And so Gabriel explained it to her. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts would perform this incredible miracle. A virgin was born in this world. The virgin born child was called the Son of God. The Son of God is also called the Son of David. David has an heir for his throne. It's called the sure mercies of David in Isaiah 55. When David sings about the mercies of the Lord forever in Psalm 89, he's referring to his seed that would sit forever on the throne of God. A man was in this world 2,000 years ago, and his person is perfect, and his person is glorious. He's the son of David. He is the son of God. He's the son of glory. He's the prince of glory that died on the cross of Calvary. And it gives value to the cross. He was an obedient son to Joseph and Mary, though they at times didn't understand him. He was a perfect sibling. Though his brothers and sisters, and he had many of both, did not believe on him for 33 and a half years until his resurrection. And then we read about James, the Lord's brother, being a pillar and a leader in the church of Jerusalem. But not until then, 33 and a half years, the glorious Son of God, the person that died on the cross, his own siblings that never saw him sin, that only saw a perfect life, did not believe on him. Even after three and a half years of ministry, of the multitude of miracles that he performed. He was subject to every feeling, temptation, and weakness of human flesh, but without sin. He was aware at all times that he was going to be tortured and die unjustly by wicked men. He was always aware of those in his company and those he met and what they would do in his crucifixion. Do you understand that? Do you understand you have never had a burden to bear in comparison to his. When he made Judas Iscariot an apostle, he knew everything that was in the man's heart, everything that would be in the man's heart, and everything he would do to him. Every time he saw Caiaphas or Annas, the high priest in public performances, he understood and knew their role in his crucifixion. Every soldier he passed as he walked the streets of Judea and Jerusalem and was in the temple and was in the city, every soldier that would be part of the band that would crucify him, he knew. Every false witness that was in the crowd around him when he preached, when he looked out, he could look at their faces and know that that is one of the ones that will be a false witness against me and try to get me crucified. He saw it all. You know, the Bible uses the expression the holy child Jesus twice in Acts chapter 4, and there's nothing wrong with that terminology because for a man to be on the cross, he once had to be a child, and he was the holy child Jesus. Right. He had the highest levels of emotional feelings because you can see that throughout the miracles he performed, the compassion that he had on those who were out of the way, the compassion he had in the multitude in wanting them to be fed because they had been without food for some hours, his compassion on the widow woman of Nain because her, her son was on that funeral by her. He, he could feel deeply, and the Bible says he was touched with all the feelings of our infirmities, right. yet without sin. You keep all of that in mind because the person that died on the cross for us to rid us was not some cold, cruel, heartless person that just went to the cross mechanically. He was one of deep, deep compassion, feelings, and empathy, the likes of which you don't know and I don't know compared to his. Look at the loving forgiveness that he had for that group of men that were around him that disappointed him every day of their of his life and their lives. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. His life is necessary in order for his life to be lost. And it's another study. But think briefly of a few events in his life that give value and glory to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look to the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil... Do you see his virtue? You get hungry after 40 minutes. You're dead after 40 days. 
Man shall not live by bread alone. After 40 days, would your first ambition still be upon the Word of God rather than a sandwich? What a glorious Savior He was. It is written. He appealed to the Scripture three times. He read the Word of God in the hometown synagogue of Nazareth so graciously that they wondered at the gracious words that came out of His mouth even though He was reading Isaiah 61 and He was the fulfillment of it. The most profane and wicked enemies in the universe worshipped Him. The devils would run and worship Him and fall on their faces in the men that they possessed to worship Him. We know Thee who Thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art Thou come to torment us before the time? They worshipped Him. Think about His life. He never promoted Himself, but told those seeing His miracles to keep them quiet and to tell no man. Because He did not raise His voice in the streets. If you measure Him by zeal, the house of God ate Him up. And so He cleansed it of the thieves and robbers that were there. If you measure Him by prayer, He was faithful with much prayer, sometimes praying all night long. This is the life. This is the person. This is the man. This is the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He wept for Lazarus. The shortest verse in the Bible is John 11.35. Jesus wept. He wept for His friend Lazarus and for His sisters who were weeping at His burial. There were no skeletons in His closet or anything even close to imperfection. This is the life of the Son of God that He laid down for us. In Isaiah 53, you heard that He went as a lamb to the slaughter. Lambs don't fight. You need to have a sheep shearing. You need to go to a slaughter and to see some lambs. Maybe we can arrange that for the springtime when there is sheep shearing. Jesus went to the crucifixion death as a meek lamb to the slaughter. I call this the submission of the cross. Jesus submitted to the cross. Though, though He knocked down the host that came against Him in the Garden of Gethsemane, He went submissively with them. They came into the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord Jesus Christ having been strengthened by an angel after his strong crying and strong praying there in Gethsemane, went out to meet them and said, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I am He. And when He said, I am He, they all fell backward. But the foolish wickedness of men stood back up on their feet and came after Him again. You would think... You would think that they would have fought what just happened to us. Peter draws a sword and chops the ear off Melchus, a servant of the high priest. Jesus heals the ear in front of them. You would think they would have thought. But brethren, is it true of us that there are things that we do that you would think that we would have thought and we wouldn't do such things because of knowing Jesus of Nazareth? When we look into that garden and we think them being so foolish, wicked, and rebellious, make sure that we point some of those fingers at ourselves for the wickedness that is in our own hearts. When Peter drew that sword and cut off the ear of Melchus, Jesus said, Don't you know, Peter? He first of all told him, They that live by the sword will die by the sword. He said, Put that thing up. Don't you know that right now I could ask of my father and get more then 12 legions of angels. That would have been 72,000 angels. And he would have only needed a half of one. A half of one. His submission. Oh, brethren, be glad that he was there and not me. Because if I'd have been there, I would have called for the 12 legions of angels. And I'd have seen what they were going to do to you. And I'd have asked them to do it slowly. And I speak all of that because you're thinking the same thing. And if you're not, you're wrong. You should be thinking the same thing. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and His submission as the perfect Lamb of God. They blindfolded Him and smote Him, daring Him to tell whom had hit Him. But He submitted to their blows. 
He could have told them their ancestors, their future in hell, but He did none of it. He could have told them what vile things they had done in the last 24 hours, but He did none of it. When He was reviled, He reviled not again. When He suffered, He did not threaten. We are quick to threaten. We're quick to come back with something, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our Savior. This is the cross. It's called the submission of the cross. I see His praying in John chapter 17. Some of you consider that one of your favorite chapters in the Bible. The Lord's Prayer. The real Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven, that is the disciples' prayer. That's how disciples were taught to pray. But the Lord's Prayer is in John 17 when He prayed to His Father just hours before His crucifixion. I see Him praying in Gethsemane with great fervency and strong crying, Hebrews 5 tells us. And so earnest was he in his praying, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The metaphorical description of his praying and wrestling with God was like the sweat coming out of him was blood. He was a praying man as he went to the cross. And even on the cross, he prayed. He prayed to his Father as to why he had been forsaken. He prayed for his Father to receive his Spirit. He prayed for his Father to forgive those that were crucifying him. He was captured there in the Garden of Gethsemane by a friend of three and a half years that he had eaten bread with. And the Bible wants you to consider that aspect of it as it's described in prophecy in the Old Testament in Psalm 69. For three and a half years, Jesus sat, rubbed elbows with, embraced, hugged, kissed, washed feet of Judas Iscariot. He did not shy away or run away. What a glorious capture of the submissive Lamb of God brought to trial and no two witnesses could agree on anything against Him. There were no charges that could be brought against Him except their misunderstanding of His statements that destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. And He was referring to His body and they in their ignorance thought He was referring to the temple that had taken Herod 46 years to add on to. Oh, what a glorious Savior. Did He correct them on their misunderstanding? Or did He submissively let them railroad Him by misunderstanding that prophecy? His death is the greatest event in history. The immortal God dying for His incorrigible enemies. Why did Jehovah do this? In order to display the glory of His grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. His life is the means for imputation of righteousness. Because He lived righteously. His death is the means of imputation of sin because He took our sins upon Him. Here is where we see sin as we should see it. What justice would demand for us to suffer eternally, Jesus suffered on the cross. And that is death. What a dowry was paid for you to be married to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look and consider the sacrifice of the cross. Jesus died a unique death for rebel enemies that cannot be compared to any other death. Do not compare it to any other death. I don't care about Veterans Day in comparison to this event. They don't match up at all. Think about it with me for a moment. The Apostle Paul told us and shows us in Romans chapter 5 that we ought to make this comparison. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Consider with me briefly, a soldier dying in combat for his country is very different from Jesus dying on the cross. Today is Pearl Harbor Day. Today is December 7th. 73 years ago, the Imperial Navy of Japan bombed our ships and planes and sailors and soldiers and flyers there in Hawaii. It's an infamous day in American history, but these facts are still true that I'm about to say to you. Those that volunteer for the army or the military or armed forces do it for reasons far below virtue, 
national safety or any persons. I didn't say all of them. I said most of them. Most of those that volunteer do it for reasons like volunteer or go to prison. They don't have a job. They want to be cool. They want to come back with a few medals. They want a set of clothes. They want three squares a day. Not all of them. Most of them. They do not volunteer thinking about dying. Soldiers never think about dying that way. They think about helping the other fellow die. And I'm not going to quote George Patton right now. I will leave that to the memories of those of you that know his statement. And it's a true statement. Most that are drafted, I was talking about those that volunteer. Most that are drafted are there against their wills. So everything is self-preservation. This is especially true in wars, and I use that with quotation marks around it, that do not involve home danger. Fighting far across on the other side of the earth for a cause that we don't even know. Listen, brethren, if we were fighting five miles from home against marauding invaders that we knew if we did not stop them, they were going to get our wives and daughters and rape them repeatedly, that is laying down your life for someone. But still again, it's self-preservation. Because when you're in close hand-to-hand combat, your mind is not thinking illustrious thoughts about some concept of liberty or dying for someone else. It's trying to help that other guy die. It's not like the Lord Jesus Christ. Most soldiers do not train for noble goals, but rather competition and self-preservation. No soldier ever enters into a battle or firefight thinking or planning or desiring that he die that day. He rather enters into conflict with every intention on surviving himself and helping the other to die. Jesus knew exactly what he faced in his trial, torture and death. He knew it for his whole life and he voluntarily did that with a desire to see his seed and to save his seed. The Lord Jesus Christ did it for his enemies. That would be like being on the battlefield and pulling your forty-five and looking across the line at those coming at you and saying, I'll save you the trouble. To die, there is, there's no description of it. It is not the same. We are thankful for men who wear the uniform and women who wear the uniform and travel around the world and defend our nation and prosecute the battles, wars, police actions, or whatever else you want to call them that our nation gets involved in, but they don't do anything even close to what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Listen, they are caught totally unawares when they die, and the Lord Jesus Christ was not caught totally unawares when He died. When they are running through a jungle and they step on a mine and they are blown into 45 different pieces, they were not planning on that, nor were they thinking about that. They didn't have a thought to think about it. They didn't have a chance to think about it. If they survived it, the next thing they knew, they woke up and they were in a tent in a hospital in Germany. But not the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew it his whole life. And so I want you to make sure that you remember that. Jesus knew his entire life exactly what was involved. And for the enemies for whom he would die. There are four kinds of pain and agony that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered, and this is the agony of the cross. Let me start on it before we take a break today. There were the physical aspects of his crucifixion that we most often read about and we most often think about. What he suffered physically. But my brethren, two thieves, two thieves suffered physically as well. Right on both sides of him. There are men that have suffered worse deaths than the death of the cross from a physical standpoint. But there's non-physical aspects. There are the psychological and emotional aspects of the agony of the cross. And then there's the spiritual conflict that he had with the devil and his angels. And then there's the divine consequences of the guilt and shame that separated him from his father. We want to think about all four of these so that we fully appreciate the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The physical pain that he suffered, the agony that he suffered in his body, he was scourged by the Romans. 30 or 40 stripes across his back with leather thongs, possibly with lead 
or metal objects tied into them. The Romans were known for their cruel, efficient punishments. He was scourged by the Romans. He had a crown of thorns planted on his head and then driven into his scalp with a reed, the Bible tells us. This is the cross of Calvary. These are the things that we remember when we come in here. That we have an older brother, the preeminent brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Glory, God's Son, that came to earth to fight a battle that no one helped him with. He fought it himself, alone, and he purged our sins. He delivered us from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He opened to us the tree of life. He opened heaven to us. He closed hell to us. He saved us from death. He washed away our sins. He justified us. He paid the price for our adoption as the sons of God. And He did it first of all by His physical sufferings because the soul that sinneth, it shall die. For the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus died. But before He died, He had a crown of thorns on His head. He had His beard plucked off His face, which is revealed to us in Isaiah chapter 50, though not mentioned in the New Testament. His face was beaten by the hands and fists of Jews and Roman soldiers who mocked Him about their abuse of Him as they blindfolded Him and smashed Him in the face and dared Him to prove that He was the Son of God or a prophet and tell them who had hit Him. He was kept up all night without sleep by torture and a fraudulent trial to condemn Him both with the Jews, then with Pilate, then with Herod, then with Pilate again. He was forced to carry his own cross after being physically, emotionally abused all night. He had nails driven through his hands and feet, tender parts. He hadn't been a carpenter for years. Tender hands, tender feet, driven nails driven through into a wooden cross to support him. He was suspended on that cross with those four nails supporting his entire body weight. He was extremely thirsty. Because he said, I thirst from the hours of trial and torture and fluid loss of the crucifixion. He was fully conscious of pain by being able to have a conversation with a thief, a conversation with John and his mother about her future care, conversations with his father because he had refused the sedative that was offered to him before he went on the cross, the vinegar or the wine mixed with myrrh. Though these physical sufferings are horrific, other men have suffered similarly or worse. But it is those physical sufferings that we remember at the Lord's Supper today. His torn body and His shed blood. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it your glory? It's God's glory. It's the Lord Jesus Christ's glory. Why isn't it your glory? It should be. Let me give you a few of the psychological pains. And when I use the word psychological, I mean those emotional and personal things that would have been very troublesome to him as even little fractions of these are to you on a daily basis. We mean the grief and pain of emotional and personal tribulation. He was pained in his soul with knowledge of the future. The Bible tells us that. In Matthew chapter 26, and the first couple of verses, it tells us, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said unto His disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Jesus knew what was coming. His sorrow increased until He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it said He was sorrowful even unto death. He was near dying from the sorrow in his heart of what he was about to undergo. He was very heavy, it tells us. He sweat as it were great drops of blood. He had strong crying, Hebrews 5 tells us, in that garden as he begged the Father, if at all possible, to take the cup from him and provide another way for him to save his people from their sins. He was neglected in that the disciples did not discern the hypocrisy and treachery of Judas. How disappointing. His honored disciples slept. The three that He chose out of the eleven to come and join Him in prayer and ask them to wait for an hour with Him. 
His honored disciples slept instead of responding to His request for alertness, watching and praying. And this after the Last Supper, where He had intimately told them of His coming trouble and death. Peter had aggressively promised to remain faithful even unto death. But Peter denied Him three times with oaths that he never knew Him. I do not know that man. They argued at supper as to who would be greatest in the coming change. Think about that. If you were undergoing life-threatening surgery and you're sitting with your family the night before, you're to be there at 6 o'clock prepped for surgery. And they're poking each other and laughing and joking and telling jokes and want to get away from the table and go play video games. Think about the psychological, emotional consequences of such an uncaring group of people around you that should be those that care about you the most. They argued at supper as to who would be the greatest. One of his closest friends, Judas, betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, which the Bible tells us is a slave's price. His disciples forsook him and left, left him alone in the garden of Gethsemane with that mob. No efforts were made to lose their lives to save his, even though secret service agents will do it for a president and then do it for another president from a different party. We read of no defense on his behalf at trial. No one stood up, but I saw him do this. He is a good man. He is a glorious man. He is a prophet. No man could do these miracles except God were with him. Where were they? Where were the thousands that he had healed? Where were those that he had raised from the dead? What an emotional blast against the Lord Jesus Christ as he goes to the cross of Calvary. He was ridiculed, mocked, and tortured about his identity with clear evidence available that everything he had ever said about himself was absolutely true. He was unappreciated for the incredible amount of good he had done and taught for three and a half years, disowned by a dear friend who denied him three times, we think of Peter. He was humiliated with nakedness. The Prince of Glory was stripped naked for the cross. Mock titles, a purple robe, a crown of thorns, and railing upon him, pretending he was a king when he was a king. He was sarcastically mocked, though he was king and son of God. He was dared by ignorant, presumptuous, and wicked men to prophesy as to who hit him when he knew absolutely well who hit him. He was tempted to revenge with twelve legions of angels, but he did not. Rejected by his own nation, who screamed for a Roman oppressor to torture him. Unbelievable. An oppressing army. They hated the Romans, but they loved the Romans for this one event. Crucify him. He was denied by the office and man of authority he had ordained to protect the innocent. The minister of God to us for good became the minister of his crucifixion. He was sacrificed in place of Barabbas, a proven and convicted murderer and seditioner. How could there be any comparison between Jesus of Nazareth and Barabbas? Yet the nation valued Barabbas above him and said, we want Barabbas! Crucify Jesus of Nazareth. He was ridiculed as an imposter, which could not possibly be known or helped by God. He was slandered by many false witnesses, called against him to lie rather than the truth he had preached and lived his whole life. He was despised by spit in his face, though he sent sun, rain, and fruitful seasons on every one that did that to him. He was humiliated by two enemies, Pilate and Herod, becoming friends over his crucifixion. He was deserted by the governor, Pilate, who knew that Jesus was innocent and the Jews only envious of him. He was tempted to accept a sedative offered before the cross, but no, he drank of the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God. He had told that throughout his life that he would be baptized with the baptism that James and John could not do, but yet they would do, and he would drink of a cup of his father's wrath. 
He was railed on by two thieves who were crucified for their evil deeds at his side. He was ignored and not rescued, though there was darkness over the land for three hours. How many seconds of total darkness would it take for you to understand that this man on the cross should be taken off the cross? No one moved on his behalf. He was shamed and tortured to suffer and die naked before his women, friends, and mother. He was humiliated by being between two common thieves, though he was Lord of all and Prince of glory. He suffered not for those who loved him, but rather for enemies that hated him. There was no crowd cheering him on with tears streaming down their faces, being thankful for what he was doing. Even his apostles had run and fled and hid. Only John was nearby. On the cross, no man has suffered such emotional and psychological pain in such a short period of time as the Lord Jesus Christ did in his three and a half years of ministry leading up to the cross of Calvary. Let us take our burgundy hymnals and sing number 264 and ask ourselves some questions from him who died for us. 264 in your burgundy hymnals. <laughs> 